Welcome to episode 894 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. We've got... Righto, team, welcome along to episode 894 of Iron Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James Owens. Now, if you were listening to last week's show <laughs> and you're thinking, that's a really good quiz question about how many Iron Men there are in America, and you're waiting for the end of the show, and instead you heard about John's new shoes, his cool <laughs> shoes, well, the good news is we did forget to do that. Do you want to do it right now, John? No, we'll do it. We'll okay, do it. we're going to get the answer of the quiz question. Coming up later in the show, let's be very excited because I'm sure you've lost sleep this week. Yeah. Think about that. Our talk is proudly brought to you by our patrons. We've got Neil Lord Flashheart Thompson. That's a great nickname. Yeah. Craig the Time Lord McCarthy. Julian the Commander uh, Swartz. Commandant. Commandant, sorry, Swartz. Like Schultz, not Schultz wasn't the Commandant. Clank. Colonel Clank. You know what? I never really watched Hogan's Heroes. Oh, I've watched a few of them. Mm. Great. Did you watch Dad's Army? No. No, because that was a very popular time. It was a little before our time. So was Hogan Heroes. <laughs> oh, Hogan's Heroes was actually a lot before our time. But Hogan's Heroes got replayed and replayed and replayed. I'm sure, I'm sure Dad's Army did as well in New yeah, Zealand. True. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, what am I saying there? So, okay. Uh, this week's show. This week's got news. We've got Hot Topic. Uh, we've got an interview. We are talking to Andrew Sheaf. Um, we're talking sort of swim, sort of, I don't know, a variety of things on swimming. He's, he's come out with a book, which is quite a technical um, book to go and read, really about the intricacies of swimming and using different techniques, different drills, different equipment. Um, so it's interesting. Andrew Sheaf. Andrew Sheaf. And then we've got a quiz question. We have got a week, question. Of the week. Yeah, we've got two of them. Oh, look at that. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, not much news this week because obviously we're actually recording back to back. So, hence, we've got what's coming up this weekend, Jombo? Nothing's coming up this weekend. That's, that's what's coming up. But coming but up soon. Coming up soon, we want to start building the hype train towards the Women's Ironman we World no Championships. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to be pretty excited about this because it should be a cracker of a race. We're going to talk more about that next week. However, a couple of questions, people. First, female finisher at the Ironman Hawaii before it sort of became the World Championships was not the first year, it was the second year. He had one finisher and her name was Lynn Lemire. She swam 116, biked for 630 and ran a 510 for a 12.55 which actually placed her um, fifth out of around about 12 people. Well, there's only seven finishers. So let's have a look at this. So you had 1978 was the first year, and yep. we had 12. 79, we had 12, including one female. 80, when did it get bigger? 80, we only had 12. So the first three years, it was a very small thing. So it really oh, yeah. wasn't the, was the, then the next year we had 20, but the 10 guys, 10 girls. Oh, these are the top 10s, but... Yeah. Okay. And so it, actually, we, it, there uh, may have been more. Yeah, of course um, there would have been. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, it took a while to really take off. Yeah. So, and it wasn't the world championship back back then. It was the Hawaii Ironman, which is what it's going to maybe end up being. You know, further down the track, not the world championships every year, just be Ironman Hawaii. So let's look at some of the records. So the first ever female finisher. So let's, what's the swim record in Hakona? 
for females. If some record is 48-14 by Lucy, Lucy Charles Barclay in 2018, which was a record-setting year. Uh, this bike record is is the same year. Daniela Reef, she won it that year, didn't she? Uh, 4.26. Yeah, smoking fast and the run record you might have thought that Chelsea yeah. Sedaro got yeah. it last year because she had just such an awesome run she ran 251 but the record is still held at 250.26 by Marinda Carf. now was that the year she ran down reef I'm pretty sure it was that was and I'm phenomenal. pretty sure we were on the uh, if it was 2014 that was the year I was I was racing because I did that project 2014 so I was yeah. thinking it was that year that when we were standing on the sidelines, she went past. And Wait I was a second, like, there's actually, no way you're going to keep that up. Um, but she did. Yeah, she, yeah, she was phenomenal. 20, 2014. So. Let's have a look. 2014, who won it? 2014. Daniela Reef. Yeah, what's the issue? She ran it down. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a big margin to run. 17 down. minutes. She, yeah. Reef, well, Reef, Reef ended up running 307. Yeah, so coming off the bike, so she was four minutes behind the swim and another nine minutes on the bike. So she was basically 13 minutes behind. Yeah. Ends up taking her out by two minutes. And was that Daniela Reese first? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? man, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. So if we go to 2013, I don't think that, because didn't Renee win it that year as well? Yeah, she did. Yeah. And that was the year Rachel Joyce got second. Mm. And Joyce kind of just blew up in the run that year, unfortunately. Mm. She was gutted. Mm. Um, yeah. That, that run, and it's the fastest run ever, and it's still held up. Yeah. And what's really interesting, that was before shoes. Oh, totally. You know, so that's stellar. We saw the Women's World Marathon record get broken the weekend before so last. Because there was a one-off shoe, is it? Yeah, it just um, must just be a super, super shoe. What did she do? Was it 2 two? She took two, two minutes off, didn't she? Yeah, 211 or 212. It's just mental. Yeah. Um, so the shoe's definitely making a difference, but holy crap, balls. That's just two so minutes, fast. Yeah. Well, but how about that performance from Reese? So before shoes... Mm. Still, and there's a lot better. The, 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 she was she was an outlier at that time, mm. you know. Like Reef, I mean, sorry, not Reef. Um, Rennie, Rennie was kind of like she was a superpower of a runner, but the, mm. she was a bit of a gap between her and everyone else. There was, yeah, you know. Whereas now, there's a lot of girls who are in that two fifty range, two fifty, two fifty five. So this year, you know, if you're saying who's going to be the runners, you've got Sadara. If she runs, she ran two fifty five, two fifty one last year, and How could run the same time. If not quicker, I'd definitely say she could run quicker than that. Um, and then you've got someone like a Laura Phillip, maybe not quite that quick, but she's definitely like a two fifty-five. Yep. Danielle Reef on a day can is sub three. Yep. Um, and probably not quite down to sort of. I wonder what her fastest is, but she's sort of in that high two fifty. Chrissy. Chrissy was in that same. She yeah, was in. She, def- was, she had the record before. She was low two fifties when she when she needed to. Um, she was awesome, and there will definitely be some other females that are coming through from. She from did the back. Two, okay, so I've just pulled up two thousand eleven randomly. Uh, she did two fifty two. Mm. So Chrissy was Chrissy was an athlete. Yeah, that was a mm. year she did a shoulder. So remember, she yeah. swam one hundred one. She did a shoulder and a swim. Mm. Then. Well, she had a big bike crash. One of the years she had a big bike was it, crash. But before this, yeah, but she this one was really spe- yeah. it was that year because she mm. swam one hundred and one, mm. and Chrissy was a good swimmer. And then she, yeah, she, what a race, man! Came back from took Rennie, all yeah, took it out, unbelievable. Mm. So yeah, no, it's uh, exciting times. But as you said, Bevan, two fifty twenty six. You would assume. If she'd had the super shoes, she'd be quicker than that. Oh, easy, um, at least know. a minute or two, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. So you get, but some people respond better to the shoes than others, but you, you almost definitely say you're going to be quicker. So, um, what interesting stat that I pulled out that I thought was interesting anyway um, was the female finishes in the last edition, which is when we had the split. So, this is age group finishes? 
age group fin- yep. or to- total female finishes, yep. I think. Um, when we had the two-day format, women raced on Thursday, men raced on Saturday, Sunday, whatever it was, and there was 1,200 um, females racing on that day. Um, and I thought, I wonder what it was before that when it was just the single-day format and it was less than half. So uh, I think it was 2019, there was around about 560 okay. finishes. So, you know, I think if we're sort of saying, oh, maybe, maybe they're, we're speculating. I heard from one person that they thought there was about 1,200 people. I've got no idea if that's going to be correct for the women's race this year. If it is, that's on par with what they had yep. sort of uh, in, the, in the post-COVID comeback race. Um, and I think if they did get around that number, that's still a pretty successful day. And we, we still talked about the pros and cons last time around, last week's show, but, you know, it's one of those chicken and egg sort of situations where we get more females racing, even if it is a bit easier to qualify maybe they'll bring more people into the sport True. Yep. i don't know so, what's the flowing effect yeah yeah if yes getting... it's qualify easier to qualify but b if that brings more people in the sport is that such a bad thing don't know if it is or not though because we'll go back to the concept of general public just know kona mm. um even if a lesser person gets there they still get the prestige mm. You know, and for a lot of people, yeah, it'll be interesting. Okay, John, let's go to quiz question. Now, let's do last week's quiz question, and then we'll put a new one in for this week. So last week's quiz question was, how many Ironman races are currently being held in the United States? I'm going to say, Kona counts. We're going to have to have a pause in a second so we can actually work this out. Okay, um, I'm going to say Kona, Kona counts, Wisconsin, yes. Boulder. Oh, you can remember another one that I've forgotten about. Um... Okay, no, well, you, you keep thinking. California is, is one yeah, of Yeah, so we got California. Um, I, I, I'm going to assume that some of these are not discontinued because I know some of them have been recently. Coeur d'Alene, but I think that, I'm not sure if that happened this year. Um, you've got Lake Placid, as Bevan said. Uh, then you've got Texas. Boulder. Um, Boulder. I, I wouldn't have got Boulder, so you did well there. You've got Florida. Yep. You've got... Um, Hawaii. Hawaii. Uh, you've got Arizona. Then you have uh, Maryland. You got Chattanooga, uh, Wisconsin. Do we do Wisconsin? No, that's eleven. Um, and there's uh, Louisville, Kentucky. That's twelve. Um, so I reckon we've probably missed a couple. I'm going fourteen. Okay, I'm just, going fourteen. So I'm, you have a pause for a second, Bevan, because I've got to find them. Okay, pause. Okay, I got it. You're gonna have to count as I do it. So I'm in World Championships. Yeah. I'm in California, Florida, Arizona. Cozumel is oh, Mexico. Oh, you can't do One, two. <laughs> Wasn't it hard? Yeah. I three. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, there's only three. No, four. Yeah, four. Arizona. Um, Texas. Lake Placid. British Columbia is not. No. no. Uh, Wisconsin. Maryland. Chattanooga. That's it. There must be more. Well, I'm te- on the IBM website, North American Races. Yeah, but there's Texas. There's, that's that's Texas. Dark. You said Texas, did you? Yeah. Here we go. I'll go again. We go Kona, California, Florida, Arizona. What's happened to all these ones? uh, Lake Placid. I reckon that website's dud. Wisconsin. You mentioned Boulder. Maryland. Oh, yeah. Arizona. Maybe Boulder's only 7.3 now. Uh, Could be. If that is the case, we counted up quite a few, and if they're not all there. So there's actually nine. All right, I, I got we got up to fourteen before. Yeah, so there's a lot of discontinued races. So wait, I'll look up Ironman Boulder. Ironman Boulder, and there's like Lake Placid. Has that been discontinued as well? I know that's still there. Um, Coeur Lane, I was pretty sure. Ironman Boulder seventeen point three. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of these have been discontinued. So it's nine. 
Mm. When you said 14. Mm. You're well off. I was well off. <laughs> there I was going to say, you Americans have got so much bloody choice. <laughs> but still, nine's quite a lot. But yeah, but for a country of 400 million people, mm. you know, we, have two, we used to have two full distances here in New Zealand. One. one. Okay, John, let's go to this week's quiz That'd question. That'd be a good question. Is per capita, I, I don't know, some sort of formula... Who's got it best for in terms of iron, uh, iron distance selection? Obviously, in, Amer- in Europe, there's Ironmans all over the place. There's a lot of people as well, but your distance you have to travel is not very far. Was the easiest place to qualify? Russell Cox used to do that, didn't he? He did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, I don't certainly think Europe is not the easiest place to qualify. Definitely not. Okay, John Bowe, let's go to this week's quiz question. This week's quiz question was, uh, is, which woman finished 10th and 32nd at last year's Ironman World Champs Whoa. in Kona because I went you, wait, you, the person who got 10th and the one who got 30 second yeah because I just saw I'm pulling out a random no one no one's getting this uh, it's uh, an impossible question uh, it's not impossible anything's possible that's the Ironman <laughs> anything's possible we used to do the 30 second I used to guess the 30 second on multiple times who was going you, to no, finish I think you said twice we've right. done it for once. 20 years <laughs> did it once <laughs> was it McKenzie wasn't it it was <laughs> yeah so who finished 10th <laughs> Get that, get, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's not an impossible task. Yeah, 30, 30 second, second. There may not have even be 30 so finishes. Okay. Um, but we'll give it a crack. If you get it, I'll give you 100 bucks. But don't Got look. It. Yeah. Okay, if you get both, you're going to get both. Yeah. I'm going to give you $100. I've got cash in my drawer. Right. Okay, there we go. The money's or the bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got an interview. We have, we are talking to Andrew Sheath. We'll do an intro into him. So uh, it's a good interview. Here he is right now. Hello guys, um, we've got Andrew Sheaf on today and he has been a swim coach at the University of Arizona, uh, University of Virginia, as well as a bunch of other universities across the state. He's an ex-swimmer. Um, more importantly, he's the author of A Constraints Approach to Swimming. Um, and often when you pick up swimming books, you know, it might just sort of tell you, go and do this and main sets and talk about different swimming technique. This book is quite different uh, in terms of how it breaks down pretty much everything you ever want to know about swimming. So um, welcome along to the show, Andrew. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Uh, give us a little bit of your background. You know, I've just said you, you know, did, did some coaching at universities and you, you've been yep. an ex-swimmer yourself, but give, give us your sort of background. Yeah, so, so I got involved in the sport pretty late in life. Um, I started taking it seriously, um, you know, in, in high school. It's around age 15. And, you know, I, I was a, a decent athlete at, at other things, and it, and it I kind of realized as I was going through the process that I, you know, I missed a lot of the skill development aspect of it. Um, and so that kind of took me down a journey to try to, you know, figure these things out, you know, uh, along the way and try to just mostly to improve myself. Um, and, you know, you, surprisingly, there's not a whole lot of uh, skill development in, in swim training. It's it's kind of a given lip service, but there's not really a whole lot to it. And so that was something that's always uh, really interested me. And then I also started to get into coaching. I realized that, you know, a lot of the athletes I coached with or coached were, were struggling with the same issues and they were also having trouble with their skill development. And that was really limiting them too. And so for me, you know, just trying to figure out anything and everything I could to, to make progress in that area. And then, you know, it, it wasn't just, um, you know, trying to find some solutions. I wanted to find, you know, the most effective and the most efficient way so that, you, you know, you can get the best result for the most athletes. It's, it's, if it works with one or two athletes, you know, to me, that's not really what, what I'm looking for. And so it just kind of was a, a long journey of trying to figure out, you know, a bunch of different strategies that, that could, you know, get consistent results. And, and that's really what kind of, um, you know, has led me to this point. So in, ter- in terms of this book, as I said, you know, most swimming books you pick up are going to be 
swim talk sets. T- t- swim sets technique and, and a yeah. lot of the time it's going to be based on that athletes experiences you know who's been coaching them and yes there's going to be some science in there um but your book and and i haven't read it cover to cover i've sort of been scanning scanning through it it's very scientific approached um you look at a lot of the the research that's been done it is across all all strokes so i guess what was maybe explain your book in your words and and how you sort of went about developing it right so Kind of like you said, that most of the education, whether that's, um, you know, from, from books or, or seminars or conferences or, or you know, even on, on the Internet, you kind of have like, all right, here are the, here are the strokes or here's, here's freestyle and here's some drills and then here's some training. And it's, it, there's kind of no connection to uh, between the two. And also there's not really a, um, you know, a, a, any sort of system for actually like implementing these skills. It's just kind of like an, an add on. And so, you know, my whole journey is is kind of, you know, how can I integrate this skill development stuff into a system and then, um, you know, have it integrated with, with training. And, and so for me, the, the whole process was trying to find like, you know, act, you know and, and, and really what I was trying to do is actually keep it really simple because I had to know or I, I really wanted to know like what was absolutely, you know, going to be true and, and I knew that I could rely on and then how easily and quickly can I, um, you know, start to develop those skills while athletes are training hard. And that was kind of the impetus of it because, you know, as, as you know, with any triathlete knows, like, you know, they can be super fit. And if their skills aren't there that, you know, they, they, some person who hasn't, you know, a former competitive swimmer who hasn't swum in 30 years can, can swim laps around them. And so the, the importance of skill is pretty obvious, but there's not really that much of, uh, a systematic approach and that's really what I was trying to accomplish um, and have been trying to accomplish and still I'm trying to accomplish because to me that's kind of like the, the end goal because if you can do things consistently you can do things reliably and then you can also do it um, you know within training then I think that that's really what um, the end goal is for me. So when you look at the kind of the strategies for improving skills for athletes or triathletes in yeah. particular particularly if they're working yeah. alone without a coach what kind of things are we looking to do? Right. Yeah. So, so really when you, when it, when you think about it, and this is again, trying to, trying to keep things simple, like what does a coach do it, is they provide you feedback about how, how well you're doing or what can be improved and, 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 and that type of thing. And so for, for individuals that are working by, for the, uh, by themselves, I think the most important thing is they need to find a way to get um, feedback for themselves. And so there's, you know, and, and when you get feedback, like that's, that's what, you know, is the, is the impetus for change. Because if you, you know, you're doing something well, you're going to keep doing that. If you're, if you're doing something and you're getting feedback that it's not getting the results you want, you're going to change. And so there's kind of two ways to go about that when, when people are training by themselves is, is getting objective feedback. And so that's, um, you know, knowing how fast you're swimming, like, you know, getting times on, on your repetitions, um, knowing your stroke counts, and then sometimes knowing your stroke rates. And if those things are changing in a way that's, uh, positive or, or moving you towards your goals, then you know you're doing the right things. And if they're not, then you need, probably need to change. And, and when you're keeping track of those things all the time, you know you're, you you can start to get feedback in terms of uh, how well you're doing or wh- whether things need to change. And then the other aspect of it is, you know, kind of the sensory impact. And so, you know, or the sensory feedback, excuse me. Uh, and when athletes are able to do certain activities, certain drills that give them really clear, like sensory feedback that helps them really feel what they're trying to do. 
then that can be super powerful too. So it's, it's a matter of figuring out the, the drills that are really going to help you feel what you want to be doing. And then that way you don't necessarily need a coach to tell you exactly what to do. So if you can, you know, get your feedback, um, that's objective and then also get really clear sensory feedback, you're going to be a lot better off than just trying to like figure it out by yourself because you have nothing to guide you. So when, when you talk about that feel for the water, um, can you yeah. try to give us a little bit of some some examples there? Because I'm just trying to put myself in the in the yeah. shoes of a sort of relatively novice swimmer. Half the time, their challenge right. is, is just getting through some sets. But in terms of the feel for right. the water, maybe some cues that people can right. can try to figure out. Right. So I think the you know the first thing for for anybody that's um, you know really you know kind of getting going is is they kind of have to feel comfortable in the water because if they don't feel comfortable in the water uh, and and you know that that feeling that I might drown here or like, you know, my legs are really going to sink or, or that type of stuff. If that never goes away, it's going to be hard to really focus on, on anything else. Um, and so to me, that's usually the first step is, is getting that um, cleared up. And, and then once that is, then, then worrying about like the stuff like feel for the water becomes more important because you actually have the ability to pay attention to that stuff. And so what, what I like to have athletes do is um, use a lot of different hand positions when they swim. So like they can swim with a closed fist, they can swim with, um, you know, uh, their, their pinky and pointer finger extended and everything else is, is in a, in a bit, in a tight ball and, and doing things like that really changes the flow that goes over the, the hand. And then they can start to feel different things because it kind of goes back to that, that sensory thing is that if you're pulling through the water and it feels exactly the same all the time, you're never going to really learn to differentiate stuff. And so if you can force a change by holding your hand in different positions, you're going to start to feel how the water flows over your hand differently. And that can be a really powerful, uh, you know, experience that, that, that tunes athletes into what they're feeling when they otherwise couldn't feel that. And, and it, and again, um, when you, when you do that with like a stroke count or something, you can start to feel how, with different hand positions, how can I achieve a different stroke count? And then they start to explore that. And then when they open the hand back up, it feels like their hand is gigantic because it used to be, you know, they're used to having it be really small. And again, now they can feel things a little bit differently. So that type of activity is really important for, for that type of skill because, you know, a lot of times they just need to feel something different and changing their hand position is something that anybody can do. And it tends to be really effective. Yeah, the fist, I find the fist drill to be fantastic, but you're taking me back yeah. about 30 years doing my uh, doing the pinky drill where you sort of start with one finger yeah. and then you go two fingers, yeah. three fingers, four fingers, five. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So another area that um, I'm keen to ask about, because we, we've had a few questions on this, um, especially during lockdown, is the use of a couple of specific types of equipment. Firstly, parachutes, uh, which is what, um, yeah. maybe explain what parachute swimming is and why you might do it and the, the practicalities because right. it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing to do. So maybe explain what parachute swimming is. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and what I'm gonna, about to say applies to pretty much any type of swimming against resistance. The, the parachute tends to be, you know, the most cost effective and certainly, you know, you can fit it in a bag. It takes up no space compared to some of these uh, pretty, pretty huge contraptions. Um, and, and what I found that it can be really do effective for doing is, is like we talked about earlier, it makes feedback a lot clearer. And so if you're, if you're pulling your arm through the water and you're swimming against resistance, now all of a sudden you're going to get all sorts of pressure on your arm that you, that you wouldn't necessarily feel otherwise. And so, you know, when you're pulling your arm back and there's no resistance, you might have like a, a space in the stroke where you kind of, 
you know, you, you do something wrong, you move out to the side, you drop your elbow, all those things. And you can't necessarily feel it because the change in pressure isn't that big. But then once you um, have a parachute on or, or any type of resistance, you know, all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure. And then if you do something where you lose that pressure, that, that sensation is going to be much more obvious and you're going to be able to feel that. And then hopefully you can do something about that in the future. So that, that's one aspect that, that's really um, effective. The other thing is, you know, when you're using a, a parachute and you're not being effective with pulling, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. And so that's another type of feedback. It's, it, you know, that's just right in your face. It's like, well, I'm not moving, so I'm going to need to figure out something else to do. And that can be um, super helpful too. And in terms of using it, I think when people are starting, they're way better off starting with much uh, lighter resistance. So just get the smallest parachute you can find. And don't worry about like, don't, don't start doing like 200s or something like that. Just stick with 25s, give yourself plenty of rest and just kind of feel it out. And it's better to work on, um, you know, a smaller volume done with really well than, than just kind of like, you know, do your normal workout with a parachute. That's probably not going to not gonna work out too well. So if, if you've never seen what a parachute is yeah. before, guys, it's basically you have a harness on and you're towing a, a parachute behind you and it's just going to be yeah, grab, right. grabbing water and, uh, and forcing you to go slower. Right. I would, <laughs> would be pretty entertaining to see somebody trying parachute swimming and not moving. Um, but one, one right. aspect where you, where you aren't moving, and this happened a lot during the, the lockdowns and happened for me, right. me as well. At home, we've got a pool and my son wanted to swim and we were trying to set up some sort of stationary device um, where he right. could stay in there. Have, is that a very effective thing to do? If someone has a pool at home um, and they can set up, is, is there effective measures and what are the pros and cons to setting up some, some sort of harm? where you're basically stationary swimming, you're not moving at all. So maybe maybe explain if right. that's a, a good thing to do right. or it can be detrimental. Yeah. I don't think it can be detrimental. And, and certainly if your option is um, to, to do some sort of tethered swimming or do nothing, then you're always better off doing something. And so especially if there's logistical or, or whatever, you know, constraints that prevent you from doing your normal, you know, normal workout for whatever reason, you're way better off doing that. I think what the challenge becomes for a lot of people is, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out like what to do. And so they end up maybe just swimming for 30 minutes and that's probably not going to be as effective as maybe, you know, something like where you go for a minute pretty hard and then you take 30 seconds rest or you go from, you know, something like that where there's some sort of structure that you're, you're trying to be a little bit more productive. The other thing that it can be useful for is um, like someone can uh, work on like sustaining a given stroke rate. So let's say that, that, that they're, they know that their stroke rate is pretty low and they want to, you know, focus on improving it, then that's a perfect situation where they can just focus on trying to maintain a, whatever stroke rate they, they're, they're trying to hit um, and not really worry about too much else. And that can be effective. I would just say if, if someone's going to, to do that, they just want to make sure that they're doing some regular swimming um, as often as possible because they're, they're probably, you know, there are some differences and you want to just get used, you know, make sure that you can make that transition into regular swimming pretty, pretty easily. But again, if, if you don't have any other choices, then that's definitely a, a much better option than doing nothing. Um, and in terms of other equipment, you know, for, for triathletes, they might only be swimming twice a week, some maybe only once, some three, right. some four. There's loads of other different right. pieces of equipment out there. Um, and you were sort of doing the research yeah. and you've referenced, you know, heaps of research in your book. You know, in terms of bang for buck for triathletes, what do, what do you find yeah. the most effective, you know, snorkels, pool, get, pull, what, what do you find the most right. effective um, tools? Right. So I think it it always is going to matter on 
depend on, on what you're using it for. So if you're just using it to use it, then it's not always going to have the impact that you want. And so um, as an example, if someone is really struggling um, at the early stages of learning to swim and, and they're having a real hard time with their body position, like using a pull buoy in that case can be really helpful for helping them get their body position in line, not so much so that they can, you know, that's just uh, a temporary fix, but now they can work on some of the other aspects of their stroke that they couldn't otherwise do. And fins can be helpful for that too. So using those type of, um, you know, those pieces of equipment to help, um, you know, overcome some of the initial challenges so that you can get a little bit more comfortable in the pool, that can be helpful. Um, paddles can be helpful, but, but the way I like to use them is actually hold them upside down or like hold huh. them by the side because when, when you do that, it forces them, uh, forces people to use their forearm. Um, because if the, the wrist is locked, then if you're trying to move your hand backwards, the forearm has to move backwards. And so like a lot of, uh, you know, most people are probably familiar with the term like hot early vertical forearm and, or getting a high elbow catch or something like that. And, and holding them upside down actually kind of forces, uh, you to do that directly. And so that can be really helpful. Um, so when you say upside then, down, do you, do you mean, uh, yeah. you've just flipped them over or are you actually meaning turning them 180 degrees? And in terms uh, of, so you hold, yeah, yeah you, you, uh, they're on the inside of your palm, but you're gripping it with your fingers. And so that the rest of the paddle, uh, crosses your wrist, um, and it, it, it locks your wrist. So it's, it's basically like holding them. And then it's almost like you make a fist with the paddle and it, yeah. and then the, the bottom of the paddle crosses your wrist and then, and then you can't bend the wrist. Hmm. Um, and so that, that can be pretty helpful because it, again, it, it kind of just, it's, it's one of those drills that you don't need a coach to tell you what to do because it kind of forces you to do the right thing. Hmm. Awesome. Um, when we think about sustaining stroke length, um, how do we make yeah. sure that people, you know, don't lose their technique? As they start to, you know, as they start to, sorry, actually, wrong question. When we look at progressing, increasing sets, you know, when we're starting to increase yeah. the strength, how do we make sure people aren't losing their technique as their fatigue starts to set in? Right. So, so what you'll see happen is, um, you know, say they're doing 200s and maybe, you know, I'm just making up the numbers. Maybe they started taking um, in a short course pool 20, 20 strokes a lap. And then by the end, they're taking, taking 26 uh, strokes per lap. And kind of a, as you alluded to, you know, you can be pretty sure that that bad things have happened to their technique by that point. So I think what people can do is they can start out, you know, finding out what, what normal is for their stroke count um, and then just make sure that they're being consistent with that. And if they notice that it starts to fall off, you know, one or two strokes isn't a big deal. But if, it, if it's a significant change, then they probably need to take a break or that set was probably just a little bit too hard for them at this point. And so trying to stay with, you know, with sets that, they can complete successfully. And then once they can complete it successfully, they can add a little bit more speed or they can add a little bit more volume or that, you know, they can make it a little bit more difficult, but it's, that's one of the values of, like we talked about earlier with, with having feedback is if you're, you're able to be consistent with your stroke count throughout an entire set, you're, you're 95% certain that you've been consistent with your, with your technique. But if you're not paying attention to that, you're not necessarily going to know. And so having a baseline and then, you know, doing sets where you don't really deviate too much from that baseline and then just trying to make those sets a little bit harder over time is a, is a great way to help sustain stroke. 
Um, one question we often get from swimmers is, uh, and I'm not sure if you've addressed this in the book or not, um, is how to improve their kick. Um, triathletes, especially ex-runners, yeah. often their ankles right. are almost at bloody right angles. But um, in, right, in your right. experience coming from the swimming world, um, how can uh, yeah. triathletes try to improve their kick? Sure. And so you, you kind of, you, you mentioned the ankles. And so, you know, having like the really, really good swimmers have almost like freakishly flexible ankles. And, and that certainly helps the kicking. Um, so, so you can stretch them and that can be beneficial. Uh, the one caveat with that is one, if you're not careful, you can probably hurt yourself. And then two, you got to think about whether that might actually be hurting your running performance. And so, you know, that's something that people can play with if they want to, and it can improve their kick, but you got to think about what the potential costs of doing that uh, might be. Other than that, I've, I've found um, generally the, the approach to kick training can be like, just go longer, but, but for whatever reason, kicking tends to respond really well to shorter and faster. Mm. And so even if you do ultra, you know, the, the, the longest races possible, if you want to improve your kick, you probably need to start doing stuff that's like, 15 to 20 seconds of really hard effort, mm. take 15 to sec 20 seconds of break, and then just keep doing that. And that tends to improve kicking more than, you know, really long, uh, kick sets. And that's a, uh, another thing that can be really helpful. The, the last thing is probably, um, sometimes doing vertical kicking. And so that's like, you go into a, you know, a pool that's, you know, deeper than you are tall and you're, you're straight up and down. And you just focus on kicking there and, and you can either keep, keep your hands out of the water or you can use them for support. It doesn't really matter. But a lot of times people have trouble um, keeping their legs a little bit straight. So sometimes if, they're, if their ankles are really inflexible, they bend their knees probably too much. And so by doing the vertical kicking, you can really focus on keeping them straight. And that's a different way to um, train that skill. Mm. Now, you definitely see some athletes just doing kick you know, maybe a couple of hundred kick and it's just seems a bit aimless, just sort of a little bit of junk miles, no, but you got to do it. Fast. The hard kick, the hard yeah. kicking is, is great. Yeah. Um, a, one question I had from a guy that I swim with, uh, he's a good yeah. swimmer, but he sucks at pull. Yeah. And, and so his pull is yeah. like slower than, uh, than his normal freestyle when, when you're wearing paddles and stuff and significantly slower. Um, what do you find right. it, it often causes that big differential, between people um, with with their pool, either they're good swimmer, shitty shitty at pool, or less good yeah. swimmer and then really good at pool. Okay, so if they're the, the easier one is if they're um, not good at swimming but they're good at pulling, that usually means that they have some sort of like body position problem where their legs and their hips tend to sink in the water, and by putting the buoy in, up pops the hips, everything's in a better line. And so it's just a lot easier to move through the water. So that's usually what's happening when someone is bad at swimming and relatively good at pulling. And so it, it's basically just fixing a problem that's in their stroke. And so once that problem's fixed, all of a sudden they can swim faster. And so those type of individuals um, really need to kind of focus on improving their body position because if they can do that, then they won't necessarily need the buoy. So so that's the first, the first case. Um, the one you referenced, uh, first with that they're really bad at pulling relative to their swimming. So kicking um, is actually, so people tend to think that kicking is just like, it helps you move faster through the water because it, you know, it creates propulsion. It's just like adding your legs and your arms, but the kick actually helps you kind of like shift side to side a lot and it, and it can compensate for, for uh, little, little errors in technique. And so a lot of times it's really important for the rhythm. And so for some people you take away 
the kick and it, it and all of a sudden they have a lot more trouble like kind of getting through the rhythm of the stroke and they kind of get like bogged down and those people also tend to be um not quite as strong with their upper body and so the comp or the way to kind of get around that is you know unfortunately is to do do some pulling and that usually tends to help and i think like the kicking because it's it's focused on one uh area of the body the arms can get tired fast so you're probably better off you know quote unquote strengthening them by doing shorter and faster stuff rather than just trying to go long and try to survive because you know if, if someone's pretty weak in their upper body after you know a minute or two they're going to be really tired and then it's just really not effective and so you know kind of uh counterintuitively the the route the route to more endurance and pulling is probably doing shorter faster stuff to help build up the strength and then once they help once the strengths build up, then they can kind of add the distance and, and add the endurance to it. Just, just on, you know, the improvement of your technique using skills like the ones we've been talking about, how much time right. within a swimming week should you be spending on that aspect of your training? Yeah, so so that's where it kind of depends on what you how you define working on like skills. So to me, you know, if, if someone's swimming with us and, and they're paying attention to to a stroke count like we like we talked about earlier, to me that's skill work. And so as much as possible, I try not to, to separate the two um, because you always kind of want to have an element of some sort of skill in everything you're doing, because whether you know it or not, like, it, you know, if you're just doing a, like a set like 10 100s and you think it's just training, well, you're practicing swimming that whole time, no matter what. And so you may be getting, you know, the right heart rate zone that you you think you want to be in, but you're also either reinforcing good skills or bad skills. So I think it's really important to pay attention to it all the time. Um, you know, whether you're doing like dedicated drills or more swimming while paying attention to something like stroke count, you know, it's probably, if someone's really, really in the early stages, they probably need to spend more time, you know, doing drills and, and that type of thing, um, in conjunction with swimming. And so what maybe they could do is like, do, do, you know, two to four twenty fives of a drill and then go swim for a hundred. So that way they get practice integrating whatever they're doing on their skills into their swimming right away and i think that's a step that's missed is that you can't really separate the two processes you know you, you can work on your skills a little bit and then you try to transfer that into your swimming as, as much as possible and the more experienced someone is they may need small reminders for their skills and they can do a lot more of the swimming stuff and then earlier in the process it's more about um you know practicing the drills and then trying to translate that into their swimming so depending on what, what the athlete um, you know, where they are, I think earlier in their, in their training or excuse me, earlier in their learning experience, they can, um, add, have more drills in the beginning. And then, you know, as they get better and better, they can focus more on what they're doing while they're swimming as, as their focus. Awesome. So give, give us a bit more of a plug on the book in terms of, uh, if people are keen to, to get it, maybe just explain, um, what they can expect in there and, uh, and, how they can follow you and where they might be able to get the book from. Sure. Sure. So they can get the book, um, on Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble's pretty much, pretty much wherever. Um, and then the, what, what, the, what I try to do in the book is explain all the different, um, ways that, that you can use different sets to, to influence skills. And so I think there's probably like a hundred sets in there. And what I try to do is, is explain, the, the idea behind what, what you're trying to do and how you can use this, you know, a given concept to improve your skills. And then I give you, one, you know, one or two practical examples of how that might look so that, um, you know, you can take what, take the theory, 
understand it in practice and then and then use that you know kind of understanding to uh, adapt to whatever situation you're in as a coach or, or an athlete um, and then uh, on my I have a, a website and then on that website there's a, a a little mini course that you can get for free and it's it's you know super practical it's you know I think even if someone is not a coach it would probably be relevant because you understand some basic concepts in terms of um, how to design sets and how to get more skill development out of the sets and they can get that at um, uh, it's www.buildbettersets.com. Again, that's free, and that's probably a great starting point, um, even probably before the book because it's it's a lot simpler and it's a lot more practical. Awesome. So, guys, if you want to check out the book, it's called A Constraints-Led Approach to Swim Coaching by Andrew Sheath. Um, thanks so much for your time today, Andrew, and uh, hopefully you guys got some good content out of that and you're going to be able to go and practice some more effective swimming. So thanks, Andrew. Yep, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, if you want to get his book, what I'll do is I'll put a link to it in uh, our show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It, as we sort of discussed with Andrew, um, Andrew, it's not your classic uh, lots of swim sets. There is a lot of swim sets in there, um, and there's a lot of skill-based work in there as well, and a lot of drill work and stroke rate stuff. It, is, it does encompass all four strokes, you know, um, butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, freestyle. Um so if you're a coach, you know, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile resource to go and get. And if you're an athlete and you uh, do want to put some time into your swimming, then it's, it's a good one. If you're just looking for a workout book, it's not the right place for you to go. But um, I think it's really important, you know, it's a lot of good points there because I often just see people going to the pool and they're using toys and I'm not really sure if they're using them for the right purposes. It's more for trying to keep things interesting and variable. Yep. But it's certainly a good place for a variety of tools for getting different feel for the water because um, a lot of you guys go out there you train really hard you do the do the, the hard work you smash it um, and you sometimes sort of hit that plateau and going and doing some some specific skill work might be that one little thing that can help you to take that next little little step up um, like for little things like last week in a set we did uh, we did some swimming with one paddle you know so you'd have yep. instead of having both paddles on we would do it like 200 meters and we'd have it paddle on and then you do that 50 and then you swap and you put the paddle on the other hand and you can just feel that difference between the, the two different hands. Yeah, you get a little bit of strength work but it's just you, you'll feel particular dead spots. And the same thing applies when you're using other gear like bands or pull work. Um, it's yeah, the, the, There's a, a variety of reasons why you should do it. So um, check out the book if you're keen to take your swimming. He's got the course as well. Sorry? He's got the course. Mm. We did this interview about a month ago, didn't we? But mm. he mentioned the course. So mm -hmm. um, I can't actually remember what the course was. So um, hopefully just write that down now or we'll go back and listen and get that from him. But he mentioned that in the, sh in the interview. Okay, let's go. Coach's Corner slash one, two, three, three four, four, five. High five. five. We've got two high fives because I've got my yoga high five. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, this is this is just a real general one. The old, the old Holy Hammer, Murray Lapworth. Um, it's like, it was one of those questions like, give me a program and I've got to try to do it in 30 seconds and I'm not sure if he intended this for the show anyway but it's some content what that I mean? thought was relevant it's like how should I train for a uh, 70.3 race okay and it's like yeah. <laughs> right where do I start you got, yeah, when you, when you, you're doing the elevator pitch for a program yeah so his question was he was, he was out biking the other day with another guy you know Pete, Pete O'Brien I think yeah, it was yeah, no, and they were sort of debating whether we should train fewer days and less intensity both those fewer guys fewer days and less intensity train fewer days and less intensity yeah, that was it um, and both those guys uh, how would Murray be now 
85? Yeah, 85. <laughs> Joking, Murray, 21. Yeah, Murray's in his 50s and Peter will be in his 50s as well. Um, and probably the other end of 50, not the close Oh, end. I thought they were our age, John. Yeah. And <laughs> Trying to redeem myself. Both are focusing on their cycling. So this is sort of a slightly more cycling-specific question. Now, Murray went out and was smashing it through the hills and wanted to sort of ask about a few specific questions. But should we train fewer days, less intensity? And we're going to put a spin on that as you age. Um and it depends on a lot of factors, and, and this is going to be a really short pitch on how to okay. do this, but Murray's training for a, a bike race, which I think is round, round Topol. Um, okay, yep. 160k. 160k, whatever. Yep. Big race. And so for a lot of you guys as well, what I want to hone in on is trying to be specific. So when you ask questions about, you know, how should we train, if one of the first things you should do is actually think about the course that you're trying to train for. So Murray's course is going to be, it's a lumpy one, it's a bike race, it's drafting, it's a lot of variability in there. Specificity. And so, yeah, that's exactly right, specificity. So have a th- number one point is, what are you training for? Think about the dynamics of the ride and try to be specific. Is it a long race? Is it a triathlon where it's going to be just a, you know, an Arizona or a Western Australia type course where it's even power all the way through? Or is it going to be a road type course where you, you know, you've got quite a few little bumpy hills? Or next year I've got to train for um, the Alpe d'Huez Triathlon, mm. which I've really got to have a good hard think about. I've never done a triathlon race like that. I've ridden in the mountains a lot, but I've never actually raced in the mountains in terms of going over three passes. And it's a totally different way to train. So when, you get, when you're getting ready for your next build-up, before you start thinking about what sort of training should I do, it's like have a look at the course and try to figure out what sort of a pro, you know, fitness profile you're going to need for that particular course. Yep. Point number two in the high five, and I just noticed I've only got four points, is as you age, recover is going to, re- recovery is going to be uh, quite a bit longer between sessions, and that's certainly something I experience now. We're still only in our Mid to late 40s. Yep. Um, mid. Oh, no, no, we're late Mid. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm all right. I'm 46. No, I'm mid. I'm, I'm, certainly, I'm smacking the middle of 47 and a half. No, man. you're late. Late. Yeah, no, because no, no, no. you go early is zero to three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mid is four to six. Yeah. Late, seven above. Seven above. So um, the recovery between those longer sessions, uh, between your key sessions, is going to be um, more difficult. So that was sort of revolving back to Murray's question, should we train fewer days or less intensity? Um, but yeah, it's uh, you, it, when you age, you still can get two quality or high specific sessions in per week, and that's what most people should be pitching for, is having two good quality sessions a week quite a bit different when you're younger like I look at some of the oh, juniors and stuff and yeah. like Thomas can just like smash himself day after day yeah. if he wants to I discourage it but um, they just bounce back so much quicker yeah. and you're seeing a lot of these pros these days just racing and on they don't get weekend, weekends um, if we try that no, we're all mate. over Rover <laughs> so, um, so I've got my yoga high five coming <laughs> yeah as you age um, make sure you spread those key sessions through through the week Point number three, um, as you age, and this applies to most people, is where you're going to get stuck out is doing lots of moderate intensity. So um, again, think about the type of course you're training for, but what's going to hurt you the most is lots of moderate intensity. And especially if you're doing bike racing, you need um, that endurance for, for like a 160, 180k race, but you also need that sort of that peak power, whereas just going at a moderate intensity is what's going to put you into a big hole and what I would say everybody have one day off your week off your legs each week and have a swim only day even if you are doing bike training um, 
I think I'm going to stop there, Bevan. Okay. I'm yeah. going to my high five. Anything yeah. else just to add just quickly? Um, general guidelines. Do lots of pre-season work on your weakness. Point number two, get your base in, big miles if you're doing bike racing, and then get your specific work done as you're approaching the race. That was a bit blah. Anyway, oh, well, Rose is going to take it um, to the next <laughs> level. I'm about to say I'm about to add more blah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one, two, three, four, oh. high five. So as I was saying at the end of last week's show, um, since I've just had back issues this year, um, which I've been, it's kind of been a step forward, three steps forward, two steps back kind of a process, um, I've thought I need, you know, one thing I've never been good at is body care. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really good at pushing myself hard and exercise. I, I exercise a lot. I exercise extremely hard. I've got a good balance of exercise. So I've got good strength, core, cardio, top end, plyometric. So when you look at my work training week, generally speaking, I'm, I'm kind of nailing, if general fitness is the goal without being kind of trying mm. to be an athlete, um, I'm kind of nailing that. So I'm kind of happily overall. But this, the flexibility piece and body care work just never happened. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I've never really it's never happened because I've never needed to. Mm. You know, I've just got away with murder for a long time. Whereas in the last moment in time, unfortunately, just in the last couple of years, I've just kind of, injuries that are bigger. Because mm. I've always had injuries. I think if you're going to move, you're going to have injuries. Mm. Um, it's just how you're managing them. So I, I just determined I would try to bring a yoga habit in place. And when I went to Bali, it was kind of an easy thing to do because you're time rich. Mm-hmm. You know, I tend to do an hour work at the gym, doing bike or weights in there, I just do 20 minutes of yoga. Um, but when I came back, I thought, well, let's see if I can keep this up. But it's that thing of, we've all had that thing we think we should do mm-hmm. and we do it for two days and we don't do it. You know, and so what's the difference that actually makes you become the person who actually does it? And that's what I'm quite proud. I was saying at the end of last week's show, it's been over two months, I think, since we've been back from Bali. Mm-hmm. And I've, can, I haven't really missed any of the sessions I plan to do. So here's here's my five on, on this. So first of all, um, understand your why. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because for people like us who like triathlon training or like my gym stuff, like the, the, the yoga is not something I'm necessarily going to love. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's more of a there's a reason why I need to do this. Yeah. And for me, as I hit my mid to late <laughs> 40s, <laughs> um, I'm... It's longevity of movement's my real goal now. Mm. You know, I still would like, like at this moment in life, being an athlete's not, I just don't have the time to be an athlete. But, you know, in five, six years from now, I think I'll be a bit more time rich in life. And then that moment, I may look to be a bit more of an athlete. But the more important thing to me is I want to be able to move with intensity and, and, and the way I like to move for as long as I possibly can in my life. And that's just not sitting on a bike doing a 40 minute easy ride. It's mm. like, I like pushing myself, yeah. And so um, the wise is a more of a longer-term approach is that by investing the time now with this area of my life, if I can add more flexibility, more you know, range of motion, all this type of stuff into my week, then surely it's a better future. So understanding the why is really important. And also the other why is to manage my body right now. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two tiers to that. Planning like a legend. Mm-hmm. It's really important. Now, I'm a very good planner. Like... My weekly meeting, present, my, my, my morning <laughs> meeting. Um, I'm, I'm very good at not just knowing how to use my time, but knowing how to focus on my time. But with that, I don't have many gaps in my day. And so, you know, my day is pretty much from 4.45 in the morning through to 7 o'clock at night. Um, it's full. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I go from one thing to the next and I'm very focused. I've, I've learned how to manage my life. So I had to really think about if I'm going to try for the yoga habit in, 
when is that going to happen? And basically it's in the morning. So my morning routine's changed a little bit. I get up a little bit earlier. So I get up about eight minutes earlier than what I previously used to. And the extra eight minutes means that, and a little bit less mucking around. So previously I'd kind of get up, have breakfast, have my morning meeting, and then I'd browse for 10 minutes. You sometimes send me some pretty early emails. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I'm up early. So um, whereas now I've lost the browsing. So now what I do is I get up, I get up eight minutes earlier, I, um, I have my breakfast, I go into my office, I do my morning meeting for the day, which takes me about eight minutes, and then 20 minutes, and, and it's literally, yoga's done, I get in the car and I go to work. Mm. So it's, you've, you know, if you're like me, and, you're, and let's be honest, a lot of the people who do our sport are very high-functioning, high-demand people, especially if you're doing Ironman, mm-hmm. um, so you've just got to look for that gap. And you've really got to prioritize that. So actually, that, that probably goes on to my next point, is you've got to prioritize it. So it's that thing of, A, I've got to get up to bed eight minutes earlier. B, I've got to get to bed at the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, And so like previously, I go to bed at 8.30 and to, to 9 and maybe kind of muck around a little bit, whereas now I'm in bed at 8.30. I tend to be asleep by 9. Um, so it's that kind of prioritization piece as well. Um, learn how to do the workout. Uh, and so, okay, so I'll just pull up YouTube. So there's a couple of people I've been using on YouTube. Um, so for a lot of people, like there's some movements I just can't do. Mm-hmm. So like a pigeon pose, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so tight in my hips. They're, really? like, they're opening up. Yeah. yeah, to do it properly, yeah, yeah. I can't get my knee down on the ground. Yeah. So I think one thing you've got to understand is um, where, you, where are your limits within the movement? Mm-hmm. Now, again, I've been doing this for two months. I'm definitely my range of motions improved a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely happening. But at the same time, it's that thing of one, one philosophy. I, th- I think I talked about this on the show recently. One philosophy I've had in life right now is building the five year framework. You know, so like with my piano playing, I've gone back to just mm-hmm. nailing grade three this year, which is, you know, it's about in five years from now, I'm going to be an awesome grade nine player. Mm-hmm. So it's that understanding where you are right now and where your progressions are and then being really wise and not because for people like us we like to push you know and so like and yoga is not something you can really it's not like a cardio session we can just max out no you know it is more of just like you've just got to take your time Mm. you know and so um so learning what your limitations are and learning how to get the most of this. So like the breathing thing, I'm not very good at because mm-hmm. I kind of tend to hold my breath. So I'm just mm-hmm. trying to be aware of, okay, well, what I'm trying to learn is staying in safe ranges of emotions, working out what works for me, what doesn't work for me, focusing on that breathing. I want to get to that point where the breathing process is a, is a kind of subconscious process. So, and just understanding where you're learning is, is within that process. Um, then options you've got. So the people I tend to like, there's one called a Sarah Beth yoga. She does really good short ones. Another called uh, Yoga with Cassandra. A lot of people do Cassandra. She's got a huge. Oh no, I think audience. you're thinking of the other one. I think you're Adina, Adina, or whatever her name is. Adrian. Yeah, that's yeah. she's Cassandra. Is she big as well? Is she? Yeah. Okay. And then there's one warrior guy who does a really good one. Um, what's his name? Um, yeah, Tom Merrick, and I think he's called something like the Warrior. Um, fitness he's got some he's he's a bit more like us like he's mm. not a, you can tell he's more of a fit guy who does yoga like his movement's not as smooth and mm. he's not you know the music's not kind of the same thing but he does some really good mobility and flexibility routines mm-hmm. um, what's his name Tom Merrick yeah and and the for me I don't have any more than 20 minutes what I'm trying to do is on a Sunday do 30 to 40 minutes um, I'd like to do like do you know what young yoga is Yep. Where you kind of just hold poses for like six minutes. Yep. I wouldn't mind maybe adding one session a week where I do like a young, maybe it's my Sunday session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my fifth tip would be, 
look to create the long-term habit, mm-hmm. you know. So, and I've got to be honest, my body's definitely feeling better. Oh, yeah. I know when I do it's better. Yeah. And I think the main thing you said there is figure out your why, and I know what my why is, but then prioritizing it. I reckon everybody's got time to make it. If yeah. you want to make it happen, yeah. you can make it happen. It's the same for me. At the moment, I'm thinking, how do I how did I train for, for Challenge yeah. Road a few weeks ago? I'm like, you just make it happen. Yeah. And if I want to do yoga, I've, I know I can fit it into my day. Yeah. But you just got to make it happen. And, and, and as you can see how I've assisted, like literally I, was, I need to get up eight minutes earlier. Hmm. But also when I get up, there's a purpose to my morning. It's like you've, you've only got this, like, basically from the time I wake up to the time I leave, it's kind of like a 40 minute, 45 minute gap. Hmm. So I've got to feed myself, I've got to mentally prep my day and I'm going to do yoga. And it's, you know, and, and when I wake up, it's like I'm out of bed, I'm not pissing around, you know, I'm just ticking these boxes. Um, and then probably the other benefit is, is there's that sense of, you know you're doing something good for you. Hmm. So that I, I feel better through my range of motion. I'm feeling better in my classes, you know, all the other stuff. But actually it's that kind of thing of that identity and proud pride of, that's what I was talking about last week on the show, is I'm actually quite proud of the fact that I've stuck at it for three months and I know that I'll be able to stick at it long term. So yeah, so there's my tips. One of the things I like with, when you're doing yoga is where you can you can increase your range of motion as you go through a session. Like you, yeah. when you do a whole series of like dog poses, initially your heels are way up and then by the end you can, well, yeah. I find you can get your heels down and it feels so much better. That's why I like Tom Merrick's because he does a little bit more PNF when you're doing it. Mm. Like a lot of the yoga people are doing just, if you don't know what PNF is, uh, what is it, proprioceptive neuro, whatever it is. Yeah. It's basically where you kind of do tension release. Mm. Um, so you might hold your hamstring and then resist for five seconds really strong really hard and then you find it releases more because you're basically tricking your mind or your proprioceptive areas to kind of release the muscle um so he adds a bit of that stuff in there which i like the one thing that i did when i got into a routine before wrote because i knew i was tightening up it was i had an alarm that went off eight o'clock every night on weekdays yep, and and just that we're in front of the tv i just sit there boom eight o'clock go off put my phone on uh, 20, 25 minute sort of timer yep. and I wasn't stopping until it was done yeah. and you just did it every night. My, my family took the piss out of me, said, oh, dad's alarm's going off. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it made me it made me do it. That's a great strategy, but, hmm. you know, because even like bedtime alarms, you know, people, if you're that person, if we think of Greg Welch, which I was talking about last week, he was a guy who would never go to bed on time. A bedtime alarm's a really great thing to do hmm. and if you're going to do a bedtime, if you are that person who... You know, you're meant to be training in the morning and you know you should be bed at nine, but yeah, it's 10 o'clock and you're still watching Jerry Springer. <laughs> you know, like a bedtime alarm is a great thing, but when you do a bedtime alarm, have the list of things on the alarm. So it might be nine o'clock and at nine o'clock I stand up, I leave the lounge, I go brush my teeth, I bam, bam, bang, I pick up my book and it's a really good tool because absent-mindedness doesn't work mm. or intention doesn't always work, planning mm. does. Mm. You know, and again, so yeah, there you go. so there you go. Okay, John, let's go to website of the, of the week. week. Got an email through from the Mountain Snow. He's got thoroughly enjoyed the interview with Amy Whitehead a few weeks ago. It made me think of a fantastic interview with UK swim coach Mel Marshall, who's most famous for coaching breaststroke legend Adam Beatty. Uh, she talks about uh, deliberately messing with his schedules and his swims to get him prepared for the swimming when things can go wrong, like goggles breaking, travel disruptions, and so on. Really amazing. It's on the Inside with Brett Hawk. Must be a podcast. Uh, yep. uh, so he basically said, check it out. I was going to suggest it to you and randomly re-release, re-release it as a throwback Thursday. So anyway, that interview, I just started listening to it yesterday. Um, so it's a, it's a swimming-focused interview. I didn't actually get to the part where they talk about um, 
Yeah, deliberately messing with the schedule just to get him outside his comfort zone. So she, this woman used to coach Adam Beatty, who's yeah really good, uh, amazing breaststroke swimmer. Um, but yeah, just doing little things to get him out of his comfort zone. So easy, especially with swimming where everything's very controllable, just to get into that routine. But then when you get to a swim meet, something might happen. I don't know, you might get marshaled incorrectly or I don't know, something might get wrong. Yep. You're late for the bloody pool and you can go into this spiraling out of control yeah. panic and Curious so your focus you just she did, did random things um like as you said like breaking goggles disrupting travel with this coach roll did you ever go to rolling yeah, stuff yeah. I saw him quite a bit <laughs> and so this guy rolling he was a bit, he's a bit random but he, his heart was awesome he just he's in a wheelchair and he used to have a really good try squad for, Is he still for coach? um on and off yeah. um his, his health's not so good these days okay. i don't think but the one thing that screwed all of us over so many times is You'd be pumping it through the set and then you get to the end and you look up and he'd written the whole session up beforehand and he would have changed it and you're like, all of a sudden you're doing oh, extra nice. three, two hundreds. And I'm like, what? That wasn't up there before. Yeah. Um, and there's so many little techniques you can use to, you know, to screw does, I get what you're doing there. It's that kind of changing the situation to make stressful. So how do you deal with mm. the stress? The one, one that frustrates me is when people say, I don't like the session. It's like, mm. or they, like for our runners, I don't like that run. Yeah. Hey, you're not meant to like every run. Yeah. You know, you're like, if, if, if liking every aspect of this journey is, is key to your success, you're not going to be successful. And it's if learning how to deal with the things you don't like. The things that you're not good at are yeah. usually where you've got the most amount of growth. Anyway, I didn't actually end up listening to the rest of the interview. I sort of got distracted and, and went elsewhere. However, one thing, I went started going down a rabbit warren, which I probably should have actually listened to the rest of the interview. Because yep. they initially, it was from a few years ago, it was during COVID, and they were talking about this um, the ISL, which is International Swimming League. Okay. And this was around before COVID. And so it's a bit like it's a bit like the Collins Cup kind of thing. Yeah, it was flashy lights, like going yeah. to a disco, okay, and great. you have all these team-based yeah. sort of things. A bit like Super League kind of. For, for so swimming. hyping up entertainment, hyping it up, and then uh, it doesn't go anymore. And then I looked into why doesn't it go anymore? And the person who used to back it was this billionaire Ukrainian, and it basically stopped oh, as soon as the, the war, war. war happened. Um, so that went till 2012, uh, 2022. Doesn't go any longer. And then I went down the rabbit hole of how much money do swimmers make? <laughs> how, much money, how much money do swimmers make? <laughs> Five days later <laughs> how do they actually make any money and i just did a couple of things swimmers a lot of them except funding, for those it? it's funding the, the top ones like your michael phelps people like that massive swim endorsements and it's probably different in america but in most other countries i imagine it's through through funding but you can actually make a bit of money in swimming they have a world cup series this year there's three meets and there's 1.2 million dollars prize money across those meets but there's a lot of races a lot of races, but you can, and with that one, but from what I could see, it's point space, and you can do three events, or your three events can count, and you get points, and then there's sort of prize money based on, on points. But if you're saying there's three meets, so it's basically 400,000 a meet? Yeah, it's not, not and, huge. and there's probably how many events? Probably 20 events? I would say so. Maybe yeah. even more, with yeah. both sexes. Mm. So it's not a huge amount of money. No. It's not. It doesn't surprise me. The world champs, are, um, they have the long course world champs, which is your main ones, but they're only held every every second year. Pretty you know, reasonable sort of money at, at the world long course champs. It has been held the last few years every year because I think they were sort of catching up from COVID. But at those ones, um, there's $65,000 per event, so 20000 for the win and 2000 for eighth. So if you make the final, you're, you're in the money. Um, and then they also have a short course Worlds, not sure if that's held every year or every second year, um, but there's $2.1 million at the short course Worlds. And when you go to those races, I did have this up here. 
you get $10,000 for a win and $2,000 for eighth place, so $45,000 per race. As you said, Bevan, there's a shitload of events, you know, so you've got your four strokes and you've got at least three distances in each stroke. Um, so And two sixes. Yeah, and two sixes. Yeah. yeah. And nowadays, do they, do they put the Paralympics, para-athletes in as well? That have different, I assume there's some prize money, but I'm guessing it's going to be a lot less why than that. Why is this probably more of an entertaining sport? Because it's always good to watch. Well, you don't see the... Uh, why why the, not? The, you, know, you don't see the um, the pain and stuff. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's an above shot. So the only time I watch swimming is Olympics and that's more parochial, you know. But it's cool to watch. It is good, it is good to watch. Um, and I think if you're in, into swimming, you know, there's, there's, yeah, it's, it's good. But a bit like athletics, I don't really watch. I watch a little bit of athletics, but I don't watch any marathon running. But swimming, I think the main thing is you can't see that. Um, it's funny when you think about what mm. makes sport an entertaining thing to watch, you know, because it seems to be team sports. Like uh, tennis, mm. what what individual sports are very popular to watch? Golf, tennis, big there's big money ones. That's probably about it, really, isn't it? Mm. You know, when you think of you know when you think of uh, entertaining sports watching, mm. it tends to be team sports. It does and it tends to be a bit of a yo-yo thing. It's not just a one-off. Mm. You know, you think of like a track. You know, it's not just who's the best to do this thing. It's not like mm. the, who gets to the finish line fastest or who throws this furthest. It's kind of like there's a seesaw battle that's happening mm-hmm. that kind of crescendos at the end. Whereas, yeah, yeah marathon. Uh, cycling is probably the one because, again, there's, there's quite a bit sometimes happening. Sometimes there's nut bugger all happening. But, a marathon, but even cycling is pretty niche. Yeah, but it, like a marathon race, it's just a, it's generally just a war of attrition, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. One and and, and a other. marathon race is only really one moment. Mm. You know, one or two moments that define the race. Mm. So you're watching a two-hour event mm. when one person breaks away. And, and, and the problem with that moment is... It's, it's a slow. It's it, a slow. Well, and it breaks away and it's done. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, the, moment's, the moment's actually only about 10 seconds. Mm. Um, whereas like a good game of sport, like rugby or league or soccer or whatever, um, you know, that, that, that seesaw thing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Uh, anything else on that, John? No, that's it. Um, pretty tough way to make a living, old swimming. No, it is indeed. Okay, let's go to... Oh, we can't do Wanger. No, we're going to do Wanger of the Week. Okay, let's go to questions and answers. So, the quiz question. What is the quiz question? It was, which woman finished 10th place and 32nd at last year's Ironman World Champs? And I actually know who finished 10th, so I'm halfway there, but I've done the easy half. I'm pretty sure Laura Sedell finished 10th last year. Results. Wait a second, results. Okay, results. Let me pull them up. Does PTO have the whole thing? Uh, yeah, they, well, they have they have all the pros. They don't have all the, all the age groupers, but they have the pros. So I'm pretty sure um, that Laura Sedell finished in tenth place last year, thirty second. Thirty second. Okay, wait a second. Wait a second, guys. I've got, got it here I've anyway. Got oh. And yes, I'm right. Laura Sedell finished in tenth place. She swam fifty eight. She biked four forty six and ran a three seventeen. Uh, and she was about three minutes behind Sky Munch in ninth. And she was four minutes in front of Susie Chim, who was eleventh. Thirty second. I'm going. I'm having two cracks at it, but I won't get my hundred if I get the second one. Now you only get one chance, mate. I'm going Haley Chura. She's a really good swimmer. Um, that's my first guess. And my second guess would be Meredith Kessler. Uh, wait a second, Ironman's a pain. Okay, who'd you oh, go? I've never even heard of this person. Oh, good shit. <laughs> Seven hundred bucks. Be- Beatrice Neres. And I was, there was only 32 finishes. Oh, there uh, you go. So she was last female finisher. She did a 101 swim, a 527 on the bike, and a 402 run for a 1038. Beatrice Neres from Brazil. And who was, so who was 10th? 
tenth was Laura Sedell. Okay. So Beatrice Nieres, where did she qualify? If you don't have ten twenty eight, she qualified at Ironman Brazil. Ooh, it was a much better time. She did a nine fourteen. She spam fifty eight, right at five oh five oh one, and then ran a three oh nine. Hasn't done any racing last year, so maybe that qualified the year before. Hawaii Ironman last year was her last race potentially. How old is she? She is thirty seven. Forty nine kilograms. Crikey. Oh, that's lightweight. One fifty eight centimeters. One time years ago, when Joe and I did, I did a press up in Joe. I did a review. Yep. I was doing a bench press of Joe. Joe was about. I don't know what my wife weighs. Do you, do you reckon you can? Okay, here's the question. Yeah. Do you reckon name how much Belinda weighs? Yeah, just about sixty, low low sixties. Yeah, I yeah, know what I Joe think. is. Probably same. Nah, Joe would be lighter than Belinda. You reckon? Yeah, I've never a clue. I don't even know what I weigh. When was the last time you weighed yourself? Uh, it was a depressing experience <laughs> fairly recently. <laughs> it scarred me so much. I haven't been back. <laughs> yeah, I think I weighed seventy three like the other day when I weighed myself, and that's way too heavy for me. I'm always Way between 78 and 80. That's actually the reason when we did it was when we did the sweat testing um, oh, okay. a few yep. weeks ago. Yeah. And I got on there and I was like, these scales are wrong, Hayden. They were gar- special garment ones, <laughs> so, so they weren't wrong. I was like, they're wrong. <laughs> you need to buy some new gear. Yeah. <laughs> You're broken. Okay, there, there you go. Okay, last week. We did last week, didn't we? Okay. Yep. You didn't even know some sets. So let's, let's say thank you to our patrons. Mark Hot Rod Dixon. Uh, Chris Schreder, Schreder. And Anthony, the long train running weeks. See that long train running, about to disappear without love. Who sings? Who sings? Come Absolutely on. Come on. no idea. Doobie Brothers. <laughs> uh, let's say thank you to our patrons. If you do want to become a patron, you can support the boys and what we do each week. Go to www.imtalk.me. If you're thinking to yourself, I need to do that, and you never get around to do it, be like my yoga. Plan it into your week. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you want some coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. Have you got any slots in your camps? Uh, Alp Duez haven't, but if you guys are listening, especially Kiwis and Aussies, my camp down south in Queenstown um, in April, definitely got slots in that. And Hawaii next year, if you're planning for that, it's in May. It's awesome experience. We've got a wide variety of athletes, and that's what puts people off. So Paul Howells is coming over, nice. and he'll be towards the tail end of the field, and he wants some company. Uh, so we've got people at the front, like at the Albinator, um, and we've got people at the other end of the field. So if you ever wanted to go to Kona, I'm just saying next year's the year to do it. Um, See you, man. See you. Because... Just saying, next year's the year to do it. Is, that, is, this, is there a secret you're holding back from us? <laughs> no. It's just saying. Just saying. Hey, it's just saying. Yeah. Next year, see ya. Uh, if you want anything I do, bevanjamesisles.com. Uh, any, anything you want to email us, iamtalkpodcast.gmail.com. Now, you you held back. Last week you said there's something we've got to say for next week's show. Oh, we've got to save a little bit because... Um, oh, but, you said, but the gossip section... I'm going tra- I'll be finishing my tramp today, Bevan. Where you um, So I've got a mate coming up. We're going to be in Kaiteri for a week and with the far now, with the family. And um, I've got a mate flying up and we're just going to go for an overnight tramp and with Thomas coming as well into the Kahrangi National Park. So there's a hut up top? Uh, yep. We've got a pretty epic climb. It's going to be quite high altitude. Well, for New Zealand it is. Yep. We sort of go over about sort of 1,800 metres or so. So how long does it take you? Um, we're going to do probably about eight hours each day. Oh, wow. That's um, and How does your body handle that? Uh, feet management is the, is the challenge. I've got some different shoes I'm going to use this time. I've got yep. trail shoes. I used to go on hiking boots. Last time we did a big epic one, my feet just got shredded. Oh, really? Um, and so this time we're going for the trail shoe option. Okay. And the benefit of that is 
And the trails aren't like mountain climbing. Uh, this one will be somewhat rugged, but not not yeah. sort of. It's not mountain climbing, um, but certainly on the great walks in New Zealand, you just need trail shoes, okay. absolutely fine. But with some of these type ones, when we're doing river crossings and things like yeah, that, yeah, true. The advantage with the um, trail shoes is they'll drain quite a bit quicker, um, be lighter. Um, whereas with the boots, you've got a little bit more stability there. If it's just a little bit wet, your feet are going to stay drier. There's trade offs all over the place, Bevan. Yeah. But we're going for a bit of trail shoes. Uh, and so it's going to be cool going up to a place called Mount Arthur and then going around this Tablelands Walk and it's going to be uh, hopefully it's going to be awesome will many people be at the hut or is Ho- it quite hopefully a random not because <laughs> these huts you can't book there's, there's one we're going to go to is 12 birth or 14 birth oh you can't book them no it's just random and if you don't get it like that won't be full yeah, like it's, yeah. these huts are never full um, but if they are you're screwed that's a cool idea isn't it so New Zealand is blessed does that happen overseas um to a degree, but you do have to pay. It's a, you know you, you do have to pay, but you don't have to pay. Like yeah. it's we're paying twenty five bucks yeah. a night, and you yeah. put a little ticket in the box. Yeah. Nobody's going to be checking. Um, but it's so the it's spirit of the thing. But it's an amazing in New Zealand. The, if you ever look at the dock huts, that's our oh, department, of department of conservation. There's huts everywhere, yeah. and anyone can use them. Yeah, you know, in the, in the oh, paradise. Yeah, you do these beautiful walks, and you get sent and, and the huts. The huts. Poor, there's, some, there's, of them, there's some of them are of. Some of them are ropey. Yeah, but that's what it's about. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's kind of keeping it one with nature. Mm. Yeah. So it should be good times. Bevan, what's happening with you? Well, I'll be in Hamden next week. Oh, nice. Well, no, I'll be here. To, I'll be here when we record this. But then we're going. Joe and I. We like taking. One thing you got to do is you got to plan your next break. You're good mm-hmm. at that as well, aren't you? Yeah. You know, you, got, yeah. you have your break. We went to Bali. We're like, well, we'll have a Christmas break, but we need a break in the mid. So we thought we'll head to Hamner. So Hamner's about an hour out of Christ. It's a great place if you just want a few easy days away. I'm getting a knee injection, mm-hmm. so I can't do any exercise for a week. So I thought we'll head away, mm-hmm. get, get that done. So that's good. And then uh, I may need a knee operation. Oh, God, you're falling to pieces. Yoga's not going to save that, is it? No, unfortunately not. But fingers crossed the knee injection works. Um, and then what else happened, John? I've just been... A good ready. gelato place in Hamner. Is there? Yeah. Si- I think it's size gelato. It's quite good. That's good. Yeah. We, we, we were disappointed. What's that, little, what's that little cafe that's behind the pools? Um, Powerhouse? Oh, that's usually pretty good. Well, John, we, used to, we went there a few years ago and they had a platter. Mm. It was only like 40 bucks. Best mm. platter of our life. Mm. So much so we planned our next holiday just so we got a platter. <laughs> and yeah. so the next holiday we went there and we were like, like just perfect platter. Mm-hmm. Everything about it, you know, because you, you want a platter, you want your meats, mm-hmm. you want your cheeses, you want mm-hmm. a, the fruity stuff. You want high end, you know. And this was high end, John. They mm-hmm. over delivered. Mm-hmm. So even so, I even went on Instagram, and I never do this. <laughs> I'm like, you need to come here and do this platter, and uh, they've taken it away. Oh, it's taken away. I thought you said they've turned shit, but no, no, I'm, I'm sure it's still fine. But the platter's yeah. not there. Oh dear, you're not at the platter. <laughs> You know, like there was a highlighter. I l- Clearly, your Instagram post had no influence no, whatsoever. Obviously, I, I have no. I'm not an influencer at all. No. Do you like a platter? Uh, There's not, a time and a place. A, yeah, I'm not a regular with a platter. Probably not when I go out to a bar. Like, but when you go, when to you're going to a bar, what are you getting? Burger um, fries. I tell you what, I always get for dessert. And that's a creme brulee. If we're going. To, yeah, no, I wouldn't go to burger and fries very often. I'd often go steak. We don't have a lot of meat at home, uh, so I'd often go for a steak option or a, a salmon option. Yeah. Oh, so you mean salmon. restaurant? I mean like pub. Oh, pub. Oh, pub. Then I might go play it safe and yeah, go burger. You get burger. Yeah. <laughs> play it safe. Yeah. Yeah. Or the fish and chips. Yeah. <laughs> I love a burger. 
I'm yeah. such a simple man. Mm. Give me a burger anytime, man. I love a burger. Mm. Oh, and I'm really disappointed if it's not a good burger. We went somewhere the other couple of weeks ago. It's not hard to get the burger right. Yes, okay, tell me this, Tom. So we went, we went, no, it's not hard, but sauces can make a difference. It can. Yeah. You know? yeah. And don't, don't give me, I don't want pulled pork. Give me, give me, a, I don't even like chicken burgers. Just give me a big <laughs> bit of beef. But anyway, so we went to this place, um, Earl in town. We do first table every Friday. Yeah. Do you have first table? No, but you've said So that, first yeah? table in New Zealand, it's basically you pay $10 and you get 50% off your meal. It was pricey, isn't it? Not when you go first table. Right. <laughs> and yeah. highly recommend. Really yeah. beautiful food. But I got the burger. Mistakenly, I got the burger. And when you mm. go to high end and they do a burger, you know, they try to be fancy pants. Mm. So they had burger and then they had crisps. And I thought that must be like fries. Mm. So the burger arrives. The burger's fine. It's a mm. bit small. Mm-hmm. You know, try to be arty with the burger. Just mm-hmm. give me a lot of meat but anyway it was, it was fine but it was potato that's, chips they were yeah that's that's is that an american thing or is it a europe thing i yeah you get that sometimes i'm like what the hell is that i know because i would have ordered fries if i knew that was the case mm. you know because you need like when i go out on a friday afternoon i want to be i want to be chocolate blocker by the end of the meal mm. and i wasn't chocolate blocker no no i was you know if i had some fries <laughs> but crisp they were good crisp don't get me wrong yeah but you can't get a crisp wrong can you you can, you now, John Newsom, you are a crisp connoisseur. <laughs> yeah. What's your brand? Snack of Changies all the way. Is it the one I like? Yeah. Yeah, they are premium. And every time they deliver. Mm, they yeah. are really crunchy, amazing Thick. flavor. Yeah. No. Every time they've got flavor. It's one of those things, once you've gone there, you can't come back. No, no Bluebird just doesn't do it for you no, anymore. No. <laughs> yeah, out the back yeah. door. Eda used to have Orion's, which I liked, but they got rid of them. Mm. You know, so... Here we go. That's how the chip connoisseurs. That's your food section for the week. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. kaha.